0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast. The podcast about creativity and making a living in the arts. You're inside. This episode of the podcast features a conversation with writer and broadcaster Ian McMillan. Before we get into it, I'd just like to play you a bit of this. Listen in, hear me I may not pass this way again Begin at the beginning You were here to pass the time the sound of a sleeping city made you feel alive. A thousand hearts and Karen afraid of me to meet you eye. A single point of reference that you were trying to find. Though it was all you had, you were still sad. That was a sample of my new song, Listen In, which was released on the 1st of August. You can get access to a free download of the song by joining my mailing list. I'm also running an ultimate mixtape challenge. Create a listen-in playlist with my new song Listen In as the first track on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube or wherever you listen to your music. Send me a link or a photo of your playlist and I'll share it. There's a prize for the mixtape I think has the best songs. There's details of all of that on my website, robertlaymusic.co.uk where you will also find information about this podcast and the previous guests I've spoken to. I've been getting some great feedback about the podcast, and it's fantastic to hear from you. It'd mean a lot to me if you could subscribe, rate and review it on your preferred podcast provider, as doing that encourages the algorithms to push it to more people. It's also very handy when I'm talking to potential future guests, as it shows that people are listening. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Ian McMillan. Hi, Ian. How are you?
1: I'm very well indeed, considering the strain. Times.
0: The strange times indeed. How have the strange times affected your line of work then? As have things been very different or have things continued in a similar way for you?
1: They've, they've been very different in terms of live gigs. Of course. So they all just collapsed. There was nothing. Uh, I've been doing this endless tour of village halls. My aim was to go to every village hall in Britain and with my mate Luke Carver-Goss and then suddenly that just stopped and there were none. And the last one I did was in March, and then some people then rescheduled till the autumn, and then they're getting cancelled, and it looks now like there'll not be anything, I don't think, till 2021, partly because my demographic is older people, and to push them all into a village, oh, they're a bit nervous of that. So that all went. Um, My weekly radio show, The Verb, on Radio 3 carried on. The BBC turned up with a machine, so I was able to do it from this little room, so that was all right. Although I did miss, and I do miss, going into the studio. And hopefully, in the autumn, we'll be able to do that. Um, my regular writing work carried on, so I do various columns mm-hmm. that carried on. And then Barnsley Council wanted me to be their poet in lockdown, so I foolishly agreed to write a sonnet every week. Wow. And we encourage people to write sonnets. <laughs> and then. This community arts thing that I work for in Doncaster decided to do some remote things. I've been working with them. So on the one hand, the work has collapsed in terms of live performance. In terms of writing and broadcasting, it's kind of carried on. Uh,
0: With that live performance then, because I I was partway through a music tour at that point, a joint headline tour with my friend, Mm. Minnie Birch, and there was that week where the Prime Minister said, please avoid pubs and clubs but they're not closed. And it was yeah. this thing of, well, we have to decide what to do then because the usual thing is the show must go on, you know, mm. whether you're ill or it's snowing or there's an England match on the telly at the same time, you'd do mm. it anyway. But then this was quite a different situation. So we suddenly found ourselves thinking, well, should we be asking people to come out to shows or should we be stopping them? And then obviously it was the problem was solved for us a week later because everything was just closed. But were you having mm. those conversations with venues as well about whether to do them or not?
1: Yes, we were because... Like I said, our, our audience is an older demographic. And the last one I did was Peniston. Peniston near Barnsley. Got a wonderful community cinema, massive cinema. And I said, shall we do it? And he said, well, we can. you know. And, and the audience turned up. And at the same time, he was, he'd cancelled a band the week after. All. The band had cancelled. And you did think, well, we, partly you thought, why am I doing this? But then you thought, what else can I do? You know, what else can I do? But I think it was wrong of the government not to give the advice straight away to sell up clothes, because that that then helped in that way. It took it out of our hands. Mm. Uh, and And it just felt so odd that I usually gig on a Friday. Most Fridays I'm gigging. I'm not really doing all that many, I'm not doing tours, but every Friday I was gigging. And suddenly, Friday, it went. You know, and that was, you must have felt that too. The thing that you do suddenly disappeared. You know, the thing that you, you are was suddenly changed. And because we're resourceful, we end up doing things, but the thing that defined the person that you've become was suddenly the door was closed. It's a weird thing, it's weird.
0: Yeah, I definitely felt that. But it and the the worst thing about it, or the most confusing thing about it, was not knowing how long it was gonna be for. Yeah.
1: And yeah. still not it knowing how long be- it's gonna be for. That's what people talk about, isn't it, if you're, a, if you're a prisoner and they say, here's your release date, then you work towards that. But if you're a hostage and they say, look, we don't know when. That was the weird thing for me with the family because my family lived nearby, or two of them do, the grandkids. Mm. The worst thing for me was not being able to see the grandkids. We organised these kind of drive-by wavings. <laughs> that were, so we'd stand on the other path, they'd drive-by waving, then they were allowed to come in the garden. And it was that thing about not knowing. that You're right, we, and we still don't know, do we? We still don't know, really. I'm thinking about 2021.
0: Mm.
1: Who knows? Who really knows? What's your instinct on that as a musician and performer? What do you think?
0: So for the, the sort of stuff that I do, I don't, I don't foresee anything until next year either. Mm -hmm. um certainly spring maybe maybe later because there's a couple of problems there the venues can start up again those venues that survive can start up again as you've mentioned will audiences come out that's another question we don't know yet but then the backlog of stuff that's had to be postponed. So you suddenly yeah. think, well, it's tricky getting a gig anyway. I mean, I talked to someone about mm. the festivals, the summer festivals. Well, most of them that haven't happened this year are now saying, "We'll keep the lineup for next year, which on the yeah. one hand is fantastic. But then if you weren't on the lineup this year, yeah. that's another yeah, yeah. year that it's just not going to be a possibility. And again, there could be less festivals next year. So it's, mm. it's difficult to say. A lot of what I was doing on this particular tour were things like house concerts. So you can sort mm. of imagine that as soon as it's allowed and the the host feels mm. comfortable, they can happen. Um, venues, I think. I think the house places.
1: concert. Might, you're right. You're right about the house concert. I think that might be something that might come back. I mean, I, I love house concerts, and it feels to me that maybe one thing that's going to happen over this is that the big building based arts thing might start to fade. Sadly, you know, I love going to the Crucible, I love going to the Lowry, I love going to theatres. But I think the smaller venue might carry on. And I think the house concert might carry on. You know, the, and the thing about house concerts, as you know, is that they're an invisible circuit. Because if you tell too many people, then too many people turn up. So it's really hard to find house, but once you find them, they're not they a joyous thing? They're so much fun, house concerts.
0: They are, and it's that thing of, which might help with the whole post-COVID thing, it's that sort of invited audience of people in Mm. the know a lot of the time. So, you know, know, there's that kind of, we're in this, the rest of the world doesn't know about this, and that always adds a certain mystique to things, doesn't it? Mm. So for a lot of the people I spoke to for this have found that they are, they're able to do different things because, of their, as you say, their normal line of work has been paused. I know that obviously writing and broadcasting is something that you've been doing anyway, but has there been new creative outlets that have popped up because of this? You mentioned the, the writer in lockdown. <laughs> has there been other things like that?
1: Well, the writer in lockdown thing was really is really interesting because, you know, having to write a sonnet every week, which I write, record, and then we post on the Barnsley Museum's uh, Twitter page has been good, and then people have been sending them in. And then doing all this stuff for darts, Doncaster Community Arts, we normally work with people with mental health issues, and we have these two weekly groups that meet. And that's great. We all sit around. We have fun. We make songs. And the fact that they couldn't meet was interesting. So we've been making remote books. We've been making remote suggestions. We've been making videos. We've been writing songs with gaps so the song, they can fill them in. And what's been so interesting is that we've sent them out and they love them, but they don't want to do the things that we've sent them to do. And That's interesting, you know. That we've sent them up. Here's some songs. Here's some missing words. Just put the missing wording. You don't have to. You don't have to send it in. You can write it and post it to us. What we found is that you know a lot of them are living in shared houses, rooms in houses where they haven't got internet, and if they have got internet, they'll use it to help to, to kind of contact the DSS or somebody. So, our initial intention was that we'd send these things out. We'd be deluge we've stuck and it it turns out that's not happening so the latest thing was writing these books myself and an illustrator doing these books that then people from the community arts place took out personally and knocked on the door and said here's this book you can enjoy it as a book but you can fill these things in if you want and that's interesting and I think maybe the future for people like us might be hybrid in that way we might do an event in a house a house concert that's also so, streamed live to loads of people. We've been, we've been thinking about, haven't we, about this challenge before COVID. And now that it's happening, you think, actually, I can do this gig in Chester and the world can see it at the same time. So, that might be one of the very few good things that comes out of this. So, yes, it's challenged me practice, as they say.
0: <laughs> Which is, you know, it's difficult, but it's always good to have that. Have you found that through your mm-hmm. career that? It's that Bowie quote, isn't it? The moment that you feel comfortable in something, you're on the wrong tack and you've got to move on and, and do something you're not comfortable with. Have you, have you approached things in that way through your career? Because you've done so many different things. Like, be interesting to talk about how the broadcasting came about. Was that an objective or is that something that came through the other work?
1: It was – I mean, I've always – as you say, I've always done lots of different things. And my thing has always been, like you, I guess, it's always just say yes. When they ring you up, just say yes. It'll lead to something. It might not work. They won't ask you again. You know, that's fine. Always say yes. It leads to things. And and because of that, you often get asked to do stuff that you think, oh, can I do that? Can I do that? I'll have a go. And you do it, and it's something different. And sometimes you realise you're not very good at it. And yeah. sometimes you're all right at it, and so you do more of it. So the broadcasting began with, I always saw myself as a writer. You know, I thought I'm going to, have a, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to sit in a room and I'm going to wear a, a co- I this very specific image of me in a corduroy suit, and there were leather patches on my elbows, and I'd be sat at a desk, and I'd be writing maybe a novel or something. Writing. Every so often, I'd go downstairs and make a cup of tea, and I'd come back. And that was the vision. It's never happened like that. But the broadcasting began from that. I'd, I'd written something, and Radio Sheffield said, can you come and be interviewed about it? So they interviewed me. This is junkies years ago. And I made the presenter laugh. And he said, can you make me laugh every week? I said yes I had no idea I said yeah so they said come on every week and do something and so I did this thing every week and then he said can you present you and your mate can you present a show on a Saturday morning I went yeah and, and we we did and it was we were scared to death but in the end that was all right and then the producer moved to radio four and he said you got any ideas for radio four I said yeah ideas but you know thought of some ideas and, and, and each time it was a, a step I mean, the, the sad thing is that that kind of route into local radio is gone because local radio just this last week suffered terrible cuts, BBC radio. Um, local independent radio is suffering terrible cuts. But I'm, I'm, I'm inspired by the fact that what's coming up on the other side of that is community radio, although they don't pay people very well, is, if at all, is coming up on the other side. So then um, Radio 3 rang up. This is nearly 20 years ago. And they went, we're thinking of doing this programme, would you be interested in presenting it? And I went, yeah. But at that point, I was so scared. I thought, Radio 3, that's the big boys. And it was, and I remember I was in a hotel in Bournemouth, and it was this massive hotel, and there was only me in it for some reason. I was sitting <laughs> in this dining room, and the phone rang, and it's Radio 3. And I thought, God. And then I said, yeah, I'll have a go. So then I did some pilots, and then that happened. And it, it it's just led from there, really. And I always take Clive James' idea. Clive, Clive James said this thing that when they ask you, say yes, but also be pleased to be there. You know, so when somebody says, can you do this? Yeah, I'd love to. Can I come on? And you usually are, you know. Can you come and talk on this radio station? Yes, I can. and be pleased to be there because in a kind of career way, you'll know this, the people who are there might move somewhere else. And might ask you to do something else. and might ask you to do this. So that was how the broadcasting came about. And that is one of, I mean, the two favourite things, you'll know this, the two favourite things, you know, things are standing up in public in front of people. That is such a great thing. And also doing this, talking on the radio or on a podcast, is just a great thing. And the trouble is the two, you can't, you can't do both at once. You know what I mean? You wish you could. You could do a live broadcast, but... So, so that yeah, that's me. That that's how the that's how the broadcasting happened, and thank goodness it still happens. Which it, and I do like doing it.
0: Mm. So, in those years when it was a uh, you were writing and publishing books and performing live, so I'm writing thinking you kind of started off in a musical vein to begin with, wasn't it? And the sort of spoken word all of. kind of merged in that way.
1: Yeah, I mean, it started really by just um, I'd write poems. And I thought, and I want to find somewhere to actually perform these. I mean, before that, when I was a teenager, I was in a band, like teenagers always are. So me and my mates formed this folk rock band, and I was the drummer. Uh-huh. Although as I often say, I had no drums, so we had to I had to use giant sized Tupperware, <laughs> and I had no drumsticks, and I had to use my mum's knitting needles oh gosh and our first gig was at the church hall in the village that I still live in and they said look come and do 20 minutes all right?" at a jumble sale mm-hmm. so the curtains were short at the church hall this stage and the curtains opened and me and my mates were playing and nobody took any notice kind of buying the jumble but that kind of gave you the, the kick to think oh this is great I want to do more of that but then I'm writing poems and thinking where can you stand up and perform them because there wasn't the circuit that there is now but what there was this is like mid seventies, early seventies was folk clubs. There were folk clubs. Every town had two or three folk clubs that were very broad-minded often. And I'd say, look, can I turn up and read a poem? They went, Yeah, read a poem. So I'd stand up and read a poem. And it would get the same reaction as somebody singing a shanty or somebody singing their own song or somebody singing a Bob Dylan song. And so that's how it started. And then me and my mate thought, well we'll put little musical parodies in that. So it did start with music. And then it it just grew from there and it just grew from folk clubs, and then just again saying yes. So Rotherham Borough Council would do these lunchtime cabarets at the local arts centre. They used to pay you six quid. And you, and you and they said, do a lunchtime cabaret. And it was like, I went to see one. It was this jazz band, and it was fine. Then I stood up and did some poems in this cafe. And it just it just led from there. Then Rotherham Council said, do you want to be uh, you come round some schools? I went, yeah, I'll come round some school, thinking that it would be like I'd just stand and read some poems. Oh, God almighty, they ate me alive. It was terrible. (laughs) I was appalling. Because I just thought, I'm going to read these poems. And then you think, well, you you can make people laugh. So try and use that. So then, you know, then that that was all right. And then going into loads of schools, mainly secondaries. Then me and my mate got booked into some schools in Norfolk, these little tiny places in Norfolk. And we got this letter and it said, so-and-so, CP school. Now, CP, what is a CP school? Me and my mate. Thought they were communist party schools. <laughs> I said, where have they got communist party schools? <laughs> In Norfolk, of course. It turns out it's kind county primary, uh. and I said primary. I, what? I've never done that before. But you get there, and you realise it's another good laugh. So, what I'm really saying is that you know every everything can be an opportunity. Although you realise I'm talking about a long time ago, where I think there were different opportunities. There are opportunities now, and as you know, the struggle is always going to be. To get people to pay you, you know that. I mean, people always say, "Can you do this gig for nothing? We haven't got a budget." And you go, "I've tried that at Tesco. I've tried that <laughs> at Tesco, and going, I haven't got a budget." You know, and, and we all we all do stuff for nothing. All of us do. But but I me, mean, you must get it all the time. People are saying, "Can you do this?" It's good for exposure. You think, well, you know, can't eat exposure. Yeah. You know, sometimes people will say to you, "Can you do this?" We'll buy you a dinner, or we'll put you up in a hotel, and you think, well, look. I'd rather go home and have the money from the hotel. Just give me 50 quid. You know, how do you get around that? Because I find I'm really terrible at it. I find it really hard to ask for money. Luckily, I've got an agent who's good at that. But I still end up doing lots of things for nothing, which I don't mind doing. But how how do you get around it?
0: Well, it is difficult. I mean, when you start, I think, with with anything, well, anything at all, but certainly creative things, you work for nothing, didn't you? And and that's okay because you're, you're going to do all your crap bits at that point as well. And hopefully it's quite low low risk because you say yes. the people in the village hall might not listen that much. So it's okay mm. if you're not that good and it's okay if they're not paying. Yes. But then, you know, when you're trying to make it a living, obviously you do need to get paid for stuff. Mm. And I it's one of these weird things, certainly in music that I found, is that the better gigs, when I started to get paid for stuff, the better gigs that were more enjoyable with better audiences were the ones that paid and yeah, the gigs yeah. that were really hard and no one really wanted you there and it they treated you like yeah. crap were the ones yeah. that didn't <laughs> and i yeah. think once you got yeah. that idea you sort of uh, you know you could take that from how they approached mm-hmm. you about things which is not to say that i never do gigs that are low paid or aren't paid because some of them are fantastic things mm-hmm. but it might be for different yeah. reasons the exposure yeah, yes. one is always is always interesting i think because yeah it isn't usually that yeah. hasn't really <laughs> been the thing sometimes it is because i I do acting as well and that's always an interesting one because i used to get very frustrated in like fringe theater and stuff like that that everybody needed to get paid you know the techie had to be paid and we had to pay for the rights for the piece and the bar staff had to be paid and the guy on the door had to be paid everyone except for the actors because they're just they're it's their thing you know they enjoy it
1: (laughs) without the i suppose that is that's the good thing about house concerts because the house concert they all give a fiver or a tenner, and you do get the money, don't you? That's the mm. good thing. You know, there are no middle people. I've found with house concerts, you know, it's, it's, it's all right. You know, you get 30 people in a room, they pay 10 quid, you get paid. Yeah. That's yeah. good. Yeah. That seems to work.
0: That's it. And something I was interested to ask you about, actually, comparing that sort of circuit in the 70s to to now, um, the technology, I think, has made it possible that you can communicate directly with your Patrons or your fans, and mm. you don't need as you mentioned those middlemen. Whether it might be a, a book publisher or a record label, you might decide mm. that those things are helpful, but you don't need them in the way that you used to. But then, no. I suppose the opposite of that is there's so many people out there doing stuff, and there's so much competition for people's attention. Yeah. Do you think this is a good time to be doing creative things as an independent compared to how it was?
1: Well, I think um, you can. There are certainly the gatekeepers are still there. Mm. But as you said, you can bypass those gatekeepers. So if you want to, you can make your own podcast. If you want to, you can you can self-publish. If you want to, you can put things on in houses. And if you want to, you can go around those house concerts and you can sell your book at gigs and the book that you've made yourself. Mate of mine, Paul Cookson, fantastic poet, publishes all his own books, exclusively works in schools, more or less, part of the odd teachers' conference. So each year he'll reach more people, more audiences, than, and I ever will because he'll do a, three schools a week, a thousand kids. He'll sell a hundred books, but yet nobody's heard of him mm-hmm. outside that circuit, and that is so interesting to me. So I think it probably is a good time for being an independent. Um, but on the other hand, you've got to be able to to get it out there, haven't you? That's the yeah. problem. You know, that you've got to be able to. And the the trouble is, as we've both said, with gigs coming to a halt, although we hope they will return, most of the time you'll sell stuff at gigs. You know that, right? I mean, we sell CDs at the gigs, you sell books at gigs. You very rarely sell any books through a bookshop, but you'll sell a book at a gig because people will buy it as a souvenir. They'll say, here's a gig, I'll buy this CD, I'll buy this as a souvenir. So I think it is a good time to be an independent as long as you're – you got to be proactive. You've got to say, right, I'm going to do this. You can't wait around. Nobody's going to come knocking on your door ever. You've always got to say, look, I can do that. I can try that. I can do that. And well, Like I said, sometimes it's an abject failure. We, me and my mate did a, did a CD. Me and Luke did a CD because we're going around all these village halls and we had separate stuff. I had books. He had a CD of his own stuff. So, Let's mm-hmm. do a joint CD. Cost a fortune. He kept saying, we need a we need a drummer.
0: Yeah. We need
1: a bass player. We need a back, and we did. We need. We need somebody to design the CD. Did all that? He said we need. We're gonna. We did. We're gonna do 500. Then he said it's only a bit more to do a thousand. Do a thousand. We did this gig at a place called Norton in Hales, Millidgeall, not far from somewhere in Warwickshire. Nice Billy Joe. Eighty people in the audience. We said we'll do it as the launch gig for the CD. Put all these CDs in the pile. We're going. I think we might sell twenty we might sell 21 we sold two two that was it <laughs> and then the next gig we saw one and i don't know what the point of that story is except that it <laughs> might take a while to sell a cd
0: yeah oh, and it never quite goes the way that you expect that's the thing isn't no. it and there's no, nothing no. quite for, for me and you know i've got any of the success of you but the there's nothing quite as damaging in a way as the success because when you do have those events where you sell loads of CDs oh, or people yeah. join the mailing list, you're like, that's it. Now yeah. I think you have this <laughs> naive feeling that a career in this sort of thing goes like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: For listeners, that was a straight line. It's not. It's, yeah. it's, it's 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 all over the place. So you're up here this day and then next year is not yeah. so good. And that's mm-hmm. difficult, I think.
1: H- has it been that way for you as well? It does, most definitely. I mean, you think, as you say, that it's going to be some kind of, exponential curve that will rise. And so one day you were doing a gig in front of 10 people, but that 10 will become 20, become 30, become 40, become 50. And you're right, it doesn't work like that. You know, you think, oh, I've arrived, I'm doing this and that. thing. you do a village hall, there's eight people turning. You know, and the trouble is, I mean, my, I like I like a good eight. You know, I prefer a good eight to an indifferent 128. You know, <laughs> a, a good eight can be great. I did a house concert for a guy in, in Burnley. He said, look, I've only got a small house. I can only get about 20 people. In. I said, that's fine. That's fine. All I want to do is give me a lift to Harrogate. So I will do an early gig the next day in Harrogate. Give me a lift. so I'll do that. So then he rang up and said, I can't sell any tickets. There's only me and my wife and my son. I said, that's fine. That's fine. Then he said, oh, if two more people are coming who I've never met. <laughs> but I know I'm on Facebook and they're fellow Man City fans. I said, that's all right. That's fine. So there's me and five people. And it was I liked it. It was odd. But then like the weekend before, i have been on breakfast telly doing the papers. And you think, oh, I've arrived. Yeah, I've arrived in Burnley in front of five people. So I think the main thing is, easy to say, isn't it? But the main thing is, as long as you enjoy it, then that's fine. So, yes, you're right. It, It goes up and down. And you're only as good as your last gig. That's the thing, isn't it? You're as good as your last gig. And your next gig might be totally different. And the one after that might be different again.
0: Mm. And have you managed to sort of keep that perspective as you've gone through it? Because it's one that I've I've struggled with at times. <laughs> I think I'm getting there. As you say, enjoy the journey, enjoy the road that you're on mm. rather than the, the destination. Um, it's a horrible sort of contradiction, I, I feel, for most creative people, certainly for myself, in like, enjoy the creativity, enjoy the moment. But then, as you say, opportunities don't really just land. So you have to be pushing and you have to be ambitious. The balance of that, I think, can be quite difficult to achieve because you, you want to be ambitious and do more so when things aren't happening you can get fed up, fed up but trying to enjoy it at the time
1: yeah you're right I mean it's it. I'm lucky in that I have a, a guy who, agent, my agent who looks after me and he's a good man because I don't like to work weekends you know I don't like to work Saturdays my musician mates can't believe that yeah. that's the only day they work but I've always liked to have Saturday and Sunday off and he's a good gatekeeper but apart from that you know I am proactive and I try and Make things happen. And and you're right, there are times when not much happens, or things happen that you weren't expecting, or the thing that you were expecting doesn't happen. And it's you've got to you've got to balance, as you see, you've got to balance the creativity with the ambition. And ambition is a funny thing, isn't it? Because you feel ambitious, and you feel ambitious for the work, and you want the work to be seen by people, but also you think. I just have a bit of fame and wealth. I fancy a bit of fame and wealth, and then you think, "Oh, I'll go to this house in Berlin, five people." You know, so sometimes you think I like to be very, very famous, so that people go, "Are you that fella?" Which occasionally happens round here. Are you that silly bugger? Are you that bloke, you that bloke? <laughs> off the telly? That sometimes happens. But then I once saw Cliff Richard on in Leicester Square, and he pulled up in a taxi, and I thought, oh, "That's Cliff Richard," and he put a hanky over his face. <laughs> when he got out of the taxi and people are going, who's that bloke with a hanky on his face? <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to be that famous. That I've got to walk around with a hanky on this. although we're all doing that at the moment. Cause he,
0: to, <laughs> he was just so ahead much. of the times.
1: He was, he was way ahead of the curve. <laughs> so I don't know. It's a funny thing. I've, I've often I've often fancied you know, at times of you sit there and you think, God, it'd be great to be really famous. And then you think, well, I probably wouldn't actually. And it's too late anyway now. It's too late.
0: <laughs> have you ever had a moment where you've you have felt like Oh, this I've achieved what I want. This is where I want to be with a career. I you know, whether it's being well known or been on the BBC or whatever, or is it not like that when it happens? It's just another gig.
1: Well, I mean, certainly doing this show on Radio Three is such a delight. You know, every week, every week to be on Radio Three for eighteen years now, that's that feels great. That really does. The thing about Radio Three is not a vast amount of people listen to it. So you can stretch out, you can do interesting things, you can mm. So we had a programme based around mollusks. We did a mollusk-based show one week. That'd be quite hard to do on Radio 4. Radio 4 wouldn't be keen on that, I don't think. Um, you can you can do very challenging writing on the verb, which people find hard to listen to. You can do avant-garde stuff. So that I feel that I really do enjoy that. And if that ever went, which one day it will, obviously if things don't last forever, you'd feel sad about that. Um, but sometimes, you know, you'll have this is pre-coronavirus, you'll have a week where you'll write something. You think, oh, that's quite a good piece of writing. You'll do the verb. You'll do a gig where people are laughing their heads off. And you think, wow, this is where I want to be. This is great. I'm enjoying that. And the week after that, you know, the gig doesn't work so well. You know, your thinking's not as clear. So, yeah, I think in this kind of job, you hold on really tight to the things that really work. Mm. And then the ones that don't work. Can take on a kind of perspective. I mean, you you, you must have done that. You know, you you do a you do a gig that's not as good as the one you did last week. You think, well, last week's one was great. And also, in the end, it's often things that are out of your control. You know, you'll you'll be as good as you were last week, but the room isn't as good, or the audience isn't as good, or it's a bit too late, or they've had a bit too much to drink, or they haven't had enough to drink, or the, you know, it all those factors that we can't control. Mm. You know, you'll have had this where. I've had it in Village Halls where people get up and go, Well, this will be the funniest thing you've ever seen in your life. You're going to, you're going to die laughing. There'll be ambulances turning up for cracked ribs. You think, Thanks, thanks very much. I once had one where this this woman got up in the Village Hall, me and my mate Tony Husband, cartoons, we were doing this gig in the Village Hall in Leicestershire. And I said, Have we sold many tickets? She said, I've sold 40 and I need to sell 60 to break even. But I know they'll come on the door, but I wish to buy the tickets in advance. And that's always the case. So she said, I might have a word with them before you start. <laughs> and she got up and she went, right, before I get you in and Tony on, can I just say how fed up I am, how absolutely furious I am that you're not buying your tickets in advance. If you buy your tickets in advance, that'll make my life much better. She went on this fantastic rant. <laughs> then she went, please welcome you," <laughs> And stuff like that, you think, well, no we can do about it, you know. <laughs> Oh, that's uh, excellent.
0: That is good. I heard a Ginger Baker quite recently, which surprised me. Because, uh about like stage fright. And I was like, surely Ginger Baker can mm. have had stage fright. What are you talking about? But it's this thing of whether Cream were playing at the uh, Winterland Ballroom or whatever it was in the 60s and there was mm. thousands of people there. He'd just be like, oh, it's just another gig. Mm. So as far as he was concerned, whether it was the Albert Hall or it was the Jazz Club, it was just a gig. And mm. the amount of people didn't mm. matter. And I thought, that's really interesting. So it's like, if it is eight people, it's mm. still a gig that's, oh, yeah. that's important because there's that danger you can fall in of being like, oh, it's only eight. So, well, you know, you don't, you're upset. So, you don't give your, your best. But of course, the eight people that are there deserve your best much more than the, the 50 that aren't.
1: I did one somewhere in Bedford, not long before the lockdown, maybe the autumn before the lockdown with Tony Husband. And there were six genuine audience members. And it was in a school, it was an evening doing a school. And there were people there, it was, you feel daft when you say it was one of the best gigs I've done for ages, because they were laughing, there was people crying with laughter, there were people, there was some, there was one of the eight, one of the eight people, or six, I know mean, when it was, didn't get it, and kept looking around at the ones who were laughing, why are they <laughs> laughing? It's not funny. Somebody arrived halfway through, and just sat there laughing, saying, sorry, I'm late. It was like, absolute and utter joy, you know, me and Tony said, well, it's a long way to come for that number of people, but wow. So yeah, and... and I think the the ones that I find hard is because what I like to do is at gigs, I like to welcome people at the door and I welcome them at the door and I give them a, a free gift. I give them a postcard and I partly do that because there's a little bit of interactivity in the show and you can work out the ones that might want to play and the ones that might not want to, because you never want to get anybody who, who might not want to play, but the ones mm-hmm. who are interactive is good. And it relaxes me and some performers like to hide around the back and then come on. Fair enough. But I, I don't get nervous, but I'd find that a bit nerve-wracking. So when I'm doing village halls, that's easy. But if you're doing a bigger gig in a theatre, it's kind of impossible. So that's, for me, my perfect space would be a village hall with about 80 people in it. That would be perfect. My mate Luke says he'd rather perform in bigger venues, which is fine. But for me, a smallish venue with that number of people, I've, I've met them all at the door. I've given them a present. They all know me because I've given them a present. It's just, that that's my perfect kind of gig, I would mm. say. Mm.
0: With the verb, I'm interested to know, when you have the opportunity to talk to other writers, what have you learned from some of those writers and uh, people's different approaches to doing things? I guess there's as many different ways of doing it as there are people, but is there stuff that you've picked up that's a common theme and are there any things that you've nicked <laughs> from some of the people that you've spoken to?
1: What always interests me with the verb is that because it's on Radio 3, we can ask a bit harder questions than you might on Radio 4. So on Radio 4, you might say, tell me about your lovely book. Whereas on Radio 3, we can ask them quite hard questions about how they write. And what I'm always interested in, the two things I'm interested in with a poet is the line. The line is the thing that makes a poem. So the white space at the end of the line is what makes a thing a poem. So me and my Producer faith are obsessed with the white, line, the white space, the underlines. We'll talk to poets about that and they'll say, Oh, we're interested that you're interested in the white space. So I've learned a lot about the line. And then with, with prose writers, I am so interested in the sentence. Where does what is the sentence? I'm interested in American sentences. Americans seem to be able to write better sentences than European people. They have more force to them, they're more glamorous. They seem to think out about them. So we interviewed uh, David Sedaris, the comedian, and we said, tell us about your sentences. How do you write your sentences? And he said, "He said, you're treating me like a king. He said, <laughs> I've never been asked about my sentences before. I said, well, you've never been on the verb before. So <laughs> what I learned from that is that people approach sentences in a different way. Other writers will say, well, I use the paragraph as their way of thinking. I use the page, not the sentence. And that's been so interesting, just to hear about people work on their craft and that has been so interesting and and, and what, what writers always want to they're always kind of flattered that you've read the book they go what you've read the book it's amazing how many people don't read the book yeah i've read the book i've read the book twice i've read the book so i can talk to them about you No, know, you go that bit on page 283 and they go you've read the book you have know, read the book <laughs> and, and I'll, I'll you know if they're in the studio i'll show them the book with all the bits crossed out and all the bits underlined you know and and so that's what I've learned: that the, the white space is very important at the end of a line, and that in the end, the sentence is the building block of prose, and that still, Americans are better at it. You know, we talked to Joyce Carol Oates, the great American writer, recently, and she was very interested on in sentences. You know, she says she thinks in sentences. She works out how the sentence might work. And it's, again, a thing with Americans that they can put a place name in and to us it's glamorous. You know, they can mm. put Medicine Hat in and it's more glamorous than Walsall to us, you know, and so there's that about it. There's the glamour of the place. But yeah, so that's what I've learned. And also that it's nice to get a couple of writers in the studio who don't know each other and they'll kind of rub up against each other creatively. That is so exciting. When will go, oh, I didn't realise that. I do this, you do this, I do that. We've only ever had, um, we've only ever talked to the wrong writer once um there's a, a novelist from Manchester called Nicholas Royal and we got the wrong the wrong Nicholas Royal we had uh, we had there's a Nicholas Royal lives in Brighton who is an academic and ah. my producer said we've got Nicholas Royal on I said oh is he coming in I Said no he's down the line from Brighton oh well, must be away. <laughs> this is years ago and where the producer maybe hadn't done the right amount of homework I don't know so We get Nicholas Royal on the line. And I said, (laughs) so, Nicholas, um, we were doing a thing about Freud in novels. I said, a lot of your novels feature Freudian symbolism. And he went, Ian, nobody's ever read my novels. I said, oh, you've been disingenuous there, Nicholas, because I've read them all. He said, I doubt it. they are in a drawer at all. (laughs) I've never sent them out. And then he said, you think I'm Nicholas Royal, the novelist? (laughs) I mean, producer down the headphones went, Get out of this one. I mean, that wasn't very helpful. (laughs) But then I tried to bluff. I bluffed. I went, no, no, I realise you're Nicholas Rogers. Oh, dear. And then um, (laughs) the other writers in the room couldn't talk for laughing. So that's only ever happened once.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Which in 18 years, I guess, is is okay. It's not bad. It's not bad. It's (laughs)
1: not bad. How much –
0: that's interesting, actually. Have you got a – a big say in who's coming on the show and sort of does it give you an opportunity to talk to writers that you would like to speak to? Or
1: they, know a if I did, Sorry. Well, they know that if I had a big say, I'd invite my mates and I'd invite mainly avant-garde weird writers. <laughs> so I'm kept on a very tight rein, which is good. I'll suggest people and they'll go, what a great idea. And occasionally they'll bubble up. So yeah, maybe – I'll suggest people, and we'll get them on, but mainly it's the producers, and mainly the producers will, it depends who's around, but we, we're very determined it isn't a book show, so somebody who's on tour uh, plugging their book won't come on just to talk about their book, but occasionally you get writers from abroad who will come on and will look, talk about this. So no, I don't have a great say on it. Um, me and the producer will talk endlessly about it, and so, for example, recently we did a big long interview with Salman Rushdie because we knew that he got a new book out. But we said, let's do it as a, as a big career long interview with Salman Rushdie, but let's try and find some way in that we wouldn't normally think about. And she found out that he's a big fan of The Wizard of Oz, which I never knew. Him. So we built the whole programme around his fascination with The Wizard of Oz. And I would never have thought of that. So my producers, are, you know, they're, they're good at thinking of ways of teasing stuff in. And occasionally I'll, I'll be able to sneak in an avant garde writer. But what's great about it is that every day books arrive at the house yeah. that I have to read for the verb, and I've got to read them properly and I've got to read them. And so and then, because the verb's off at the moment, I'm kind of on my non verb reading. So I'm reading stuff that I don't have to read. And then, once the verb starts in September, here it comes again, which is fantastic. Because it means I read stuff that I would never normally have the time to read, and we'll get stuff in that I would have thought, oh, that's interesting. So no, I don't have a great deal of saying it. But that's a good thing because then you'd end up just doing the stuff that you know about. And the great thing about the show is that you end up doing stuff you don't know about. And I genuinely find stuff out, which is fantastic. But it just means that I'll show you, look, all these books,
0: mm-hmm.
1: all those books, all those books, mostly books that I have to read for the verb, <laughs> which is great.
0: What does a perfect writing day look like for you?
1: Well, this changed over the virus, to be honest with you, because I get up ridiculously early. I get up five o'clock and I go from early morning stroll. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll know that I do my early stroll tweets. And that is the time when my brain is at its best. I feel fantastic. I feel about twenty-five years old, I feel great. So then I'll get home and I'll do a bit of writing, normally. And before the virus, I would write downstairs at the table in the mm. back room where we eat, and I'd just sit, because I like the idea of noise around me, and the grandkids would come, and my wife would be doing stuff, and there'd be noise, and you could hear the neighbours and all that. But then, since the virus started, I thought, I need to find a space, I need to find a space, partly to record the verb, so I had to do it in this little room that you see, which is a spare bedroom, And then I found that since the virus started, I've had to come upstairs and actually sit in a room and write, which I never thought I'd do. In all my writing career, I've always sat downstairs. I've always had life going around me. But I found that because there was no difference between life and writing, because I wasn't going anywhere, I've got this room. So my perfect writing day would be get up very early, think about things, write a little bit of stuff first thing in the morning, read some stuff go back and look at the stuff you've written, go for another walk, come back and look at that stuff again. And then meanwhile, somebody might have asked you to do something you hadn't thought of. So somebody will ring up and say, can you do this? Oh, yeah. So then then you'll do a bit of that. And then by the afternoon, I'm kind of done. Because I get up so early, I'm not enough. I'm falling asleep. I'm like my dad. I'm starting to zizz. Which is, I mean, if I could do all my, if all my gigs could be breakfast gigs, that'd be <laughs> great. If you, do, if you could do breakfast gigs, that'd be fantastic. I mean, I, I do a lot of gigs in the evening and I'm I'm kind of energised by them, but my perfect time of day, so perfect writing day for me, we'll get loads of stuff done in the morning, a little bit in the afternoon, a bit of rewriting in the afternoon, but more reading in the evening. Um, with poems, they tend to hang about in your head and they tend to work on themselves in a way, with prose. So like my column for the Yorkshire Post, that's 550 words, which isn't very many, so I've got to get an idea and a kind of gag at the top and then a resolution. I tend to write those quite early on a Saturday morning and then rewrite them. So it all depends what I'm writing, I suppose, but mainly it's my perfect writing day is a kind of morning, if you like.
0: It's interesting that you say that the 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 poems are sort of percolating away in the head, and mm-hmm. that's where the walk is helpful, I guess, isn't it? That you yeah, definitely just allowing yeah. yourself to get into that
1: zone where you're available to the ideas.
0: But with the pros- available is the
1: thing. Being available is the thing, isn't it? Being available. I found it interesting when I'm writing lyrics for songs because I do quite a lot of that, working with composers and working with my mate Luke. That I'll start it off, and you must know this that the. You can often get a fantastic couple of lines and that you think, God, there. Just before we started talking, I've been writing some words for a choir. Uh, We're we're rehearsing in lockdown, so they're rehearsing separately. So I thought, let's write a song about, you know, we're separate but together kind of thing. Mm. And I got a couple of first lines and then I tried to write the second verse in the same pattern as the first verse and it felt strained. It felt mechanical because you've had this, free gift to a couple of lines. And that's, to me, where the kind of redrafting and the craft comes in, as you know, to make the second and third verse feel as effortless as the first verse. It's really hard, isn't it? I don't, I, what, do you find out, that, the, you know, that when you're writing a song, that the, the initial few lines can, can feel great, but then the struggle is to make the next verses as, as good as those opening lines?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's the it's the inspiration versus craft thing. Is that is for me, as you say, it's like that's arrived. Thank you very much. But that's not a song <laughs> or a or whatever it is. That's not a finished thing. I've got to finish that, and that's why stuff can hang around for a long time. I think sometimes because you've done. The, yes. I don't want to say the easy bit, but it is the easy bit. It's been the gift of yes, it. Yes. But that's why I'm interested in talking to people who have to write a lot for commissions in the way that you do, because you can't. You can't be waiting for the muse to visit you. No, you can't. So, do you have techniques no. for tricking it to happen when you've got the blank page?
1: Well, I think it is partly that you can't. If the, if you didn't write anything, there would be a blank page. So you've got to write it. You have to write this thing. I have to write my column for the Yorkshire Post. I have to write my column for the Bowser Chronicle. I have to write my column for the Dalesman, and I've got to write it. And if they don't come, so what I have is I always have, I have my notebook. I have my notebook. I mean my notebook. An idea will pop into my head. And if I don't write that down, it'll go. So I put that in there. And the, I don't know about you, but the hardest ones for me, if you get asked to write something, are when they say, Write whatever you like, and it can be as long as you want. And you think, Oh, no, no, tell me what you want. What do you want? Do you want it to be this long, that long? Do you want it to be about that? I like the more specific, the better. I often talk about one that I was asked to write. Domestos, Domestos rang up and said, can you write us a sonnet about Domestos? I said, yes. They said, can it include the phrase, the champagne of the smallest room? I said, yes. (laughs) And they said, then it was like, this." sometimes PR companies ask you to do things, and they said, so I want you to write this thing, I want you to write this poem, sonnet. We're going to erect a giant wooden toilet in Leicester Square for National Toilet Day. You're going to climb up the back of this toilet on a ladder. You're going to be in this toilet bowl. You're going to read the poem out to the assembled press who are going to come, telly, radio, and it's going to be a great celebration of toilets and poems. I said, yes, I can do that. They said, you must get to Leicester Square at half past seven in the morning because we've only got Leicester Square for half an hour. Book this space. So I get there, and I've got my poem. They frame my poem, and I've stood there with this poem. And then they're going... I said, shall I read it now? They said, no, it's all right, because Breakfast Telly haven't come yet and ITV haven't come yet and they're on the way. And then <laughs> it turned out, of course, it was a PR disaster because some other big news item had happened. Nobody turned up. Nobody came. They kept getting phone calls going, Breakfast Telly can't come, Channel 4 can't come, Radio 4 can't come. They got smaller and smaller. Uh, two Counties Radio can't come, Hospital Radio can't come. <laughs> I'm stood there with my point, framed. They went, that's it. I said, shall I do it anyway? They said, no, no point. So then they unscrewed this toilet put it back in a van, drove it off, I went home. And you think, wow. But, I mean, I would never have written a sonnet about toilets if I hadn't been asked to. And I find that a really good craft thing. So, at the moment, we're doing Barnsley Council and doing a big memorial to the people in the borough who died through the pandemic. And they said, can you write some words for it? I said, yes. They said, the main thing is, not very many words. You know, maybe a dozen. Maybe because it's going to go around the plinth of the statue. Right. I think, blimey, that's interesting. I like the specificity of that. So I thought, well, rhyme might be a bit trite in that way. You know, it might, I don't know. So I've written some samples which I've sent off, and they're going to get back to me. So I do like that kind of thing. they very, very specific commission where you'll write it. As well, you'll know this, but you'll write it, and they'll go, can you write it again? Can you do it again? Can you do it again and again and again and do it again and do it again? And, it again? and I find that interesting. You know, I like that where the, you know, the, that's testing your craft, isn't it? Yeah. And thinking, all oh, right, I can do that. i mean, in awe of people who write copy, you know, people who write adverts, people who write that kind of thing, who have got that kind of brain where they go, look, I want six words about carpets by Tento. And they'll go, all right. And, and that's what you try and do. Have you been asked to write that kind of song? Have you been asked to have you been commissioned by kind of commercial people? Because it's always it's always worth putting your name out there, I think.
0: Yeah, not not quite in that sense of commercial, but certainly for, for tasks and stuff. And one of the mm. eye-opening things for me was I went on a songwriting retreat that was hosted by Ray Davis a few years ago, which was like oh, yeah. an incredible uh. big big hero of mine. And it was all about mm. that really. It was about writing when you have to as opposed to when when you feel inspired to. And it was just these interesting Mm -hmm. little techniques of finding stories that you're going to tell. And what's been interesting Mm -hmm. for me through the pandemic, actually, is I've ended up trying, because as you were saying right at the start, our usual things we haven't been able to do, perhaps, in the normal way. So I haven't been out gigging. So Mm -hmm. I've tried some different types of writing, bits of um, prose and a a script, which were stories that I had in my head anyway and was struggling to think how they were going Mm -hmm. to be songs. And then you suddenly go, well, they don't have to be songs, do they? They can be yeah, th- something else. True. But one of the things that falls into that for me, and I'm interested to talk to you about it, is this idea of, oh, well, I don't do that. I don't write scripts. I I write songs or am I going to be a successful actor if I'm busy doing music and you have, all the, and then in the end you think, oh, fuck it, I'm interested in these different things, I'm going to do them anyway. But mm. I just wonder whether you've had yeah. those moments where you have an established identity as one type of writer when you move into something else. Is there that voice that says, oh, should you be doing that or, or not?
1: Always. There's always that voice where that goes, all right, this is where they find you out. This is where they find out that you've been making it up for years. Um, so things like people have asked me in the past to write plays and I've written a lot of plays. And every time I write a play, I go, I'm never going to write another play because I don't think I'm great at it. You know, I wrote a play. I've written plays. I've written radio plays. I mean, I find them a bit easier, but I find writing stage plays quite hard. Before the pandemic, I was commissioned by Micron Theatre, who you might know they're based on a barge and they do theatres, all the actors travel around in a barge and they perform it at barge side venue. It doesn't have to be about badging. And we'd had these ideas and I was working on the ideas and I kept thinking, I'll do this, but I don't know, being asked is better than actually doing the job. <laughs> um, and then the, the thing happened and maybe we might end up doing it. The one thing that I did absolutely completely and utterly fail at was I used to work a lot with a theatre company with for adults with learning disabilities called Full Body and the Voice in Huddersfield. And I'd just do workshops with them. We just had a laugh. And the, the producer said, can you write a play? I went, yeah. And he said, can you be in it? I said, well, I'm not an actor. I am not an actor. I'm always me. If ever I stand up, it's me. He said, well, that's what I want. He said, because... A lot of these actors in the group, they'll forget the lines and start improvising. And if you can improvise with them, that'd be great. I oh. said, all right. He said, it's going to be about a theatre troupe in the 18th century going around doing plays. And every so often the real actors leave and all you've got is learning disabled actors and they do the play just as well. I said, well, I said, great, all right, we'll do that. And it suddenly started turning to a play. So by the way, the play that this group are doing is Sheridan's The Rivals. I'd like you to learn that. I said, I'm not an actor. He said, he'd be fine. <clears throat> and I wish at that point I'd said no, but I kept saying yes. And it was the worst thing. It was about oh, 10 or 15 years ago, and we did this tour. And I was terrible. I couldn't mean I had my words written on my wrist, just to kind of remind me when I was on, I had to speak. And, I, I, and the other actors were so good, they were so good. The climax of the show is that all the actors have gone, apart from this lad who is one of the learning disabled actors, Kev. He was a fantastic actor. But he mainly did comedy. Mm. And it at the end of he always like to, at the end of every line, he'd like to go, Is that all right for you? That was his thing. The director went, Look, if you say that, I'm gonna kill you. If you say that all right for you, I'm gonna kill you. kill you. And, and at the end of it, he, he tears his book up like that. And and he did it. And he he didn't say is that all right for you? It was a great triumph. And I walked on to do it, and I forgot my lines. Now it's terrible. And the, the director got me like in a knucklehead and he said, Look, and then at the end of this tour. He said, I realize now what your strengths are. He said, You're not an actress. I, said, I told you that in maths. And, and so that was the thing where that was my big mouth getting into trouble and going, yes, I can do that. So I realized that playwriting is really hard. And I will keep practicing it and mm. I will keep trying it. But maybe that is often for me a step too far. But with Micron Theatre Company, they're gonna they've got a dramaturge who's gonna work with me. And in the end, I realized I can do gags and I can do maybe character. But you, I don't know if you'll find this, but the hardest thing for me is plot. Plot kills me. They go, oh, He can't come in that door. He just come through that door. What's she doing there? She died on page four. <laughs> you know, and and I'm 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 used to doing those things where you're going. So what you're saying is and a lot of my eyes end up like that. So what you're saying is he shouldn't have come through the door, you know? And oh, plot, <laughs> plot. So the, that oh, I find that difficult. And what else? Sometimes people said to me, I wrote I wrote a kind of semi. Autobiography called Neither Note nor Summit. They were just kind of me in search of Yorkshire. And that was all right, but then the editor kept saying a lot of your anecdotes start off quite well, then they tend to drift away. I said, Well, story of my life. And and I found that quite hard. He said, I want you to write this proper book. I said, Well, he said, Yeah. I said, What? He said, it's gonna be a big long book. I said what? 40,000 words, You went 90,000, 90,000 words, all different, you said, yeah. And I wrote this thing, and I found it really, really hard. So people sometimes say to me, you could write a novel. I think, mm, I don't think I could. I really don't think I could. I think you've got to have a certain kind of writing brain to write a novel. You've got to understand plot. You've got to have a kind of tenacity. I like the fact that, you know, this morning I've been writing this song, mm. and I'm doing this, and then this afternoon... I write a bit of a column. You know, I can I can do different things. Whereas if you're doing a novel, you've got to keep doing it. You've got to do it tomorrow and the day after and the week after. So maybe a novels are not for me.
0: Two things out of that then, if I can. <clears throat> Sometimes the things that I don't feel I'm very wouldn't be very good at, I actually think they're the things I'm less interested in. And oh, whether, yeah, there's that. Whether that you become what you're interested in a little bit. So yeah, how could I compare it? There are some musicians who are fantastic at interpreting other people, like the latest chart songs mm-hmm. and doing something really incredible with yeah. them that goes viral on the internet. And I, I feel like I couldn't really do that in that way. But then I think, well, I'm not that interested in doing that. So mm-hmm. I think it's hard to be really good at something you're not very interested in, is, yeah. is maybe the first mm-hmm. thing. Um, but then you're saying, if you've got lots of projects on the go at the same time and lots of different types of writing, I try and do that as well. And I enjoy that, but then I get concerned whether you're spreading my, whether I'm whether I'm spreading myself too thin across things. Do you find do you have that problem, or do you just that's the way you like to work?
1: That is the the way I like to work. I like to have so many things on the go at once. I find that really helps me thinking. You know, it's somehow while I'm thinking about the poem that I was doing this morning, the, the lyrics for this choir, somehow at the back of my mind, the column that I'm going to be working on later on is bubbling along. You know, and so the more things you have on the go at once, the better for me. That's why maybe a novel wouldn't work, because you'd have to do it exclusively. You'd have to make that the only thing that you did. Whereas if you got lots of different things on the go, and then somehow in a weird way, one might feed the other, I suppose. And also, as you know, you think, well, if I haven't got lots of things on the go, they might stop asking me. That's the freelance disease, isn't it? If you say no, they won't ask you. If I can't do all these things at once, they won't ask me. They won't ask me. So, you know, I remember years ago, um, this radio producer rang up and said, I want some jokes for the Grumbleweeds. I went, all right, jokes for the Grumbleweeds. He went, I want ten. I wouldn't say he was thin, but gags. (laughs) The Grumbleweeds. I went, all right. So I sat down and wrote these ten gags. At the same time, I'm to write something else. I sent these gags off and he went, I quite like number eight, but can you make it funny? Well, right. so and that, that was interesting That and I was doing something else I mean I work a lot with this cartoonist Tony Usman and he's amazing Tony Usman he used to do a daily cartoon for the Times on the sport theme and we'd be on tour somewhere and he'd get a call from the Times saying this is the subject so he'd then sit down and he'd draw four roughs, four cartoons on a sheet of A4 paper he'd find somewhere he'd sort of charm a cafe into lending their fax machine and he'd sort of fax this thing off to the Times and they'd go well, I like number three but make it funny You sit down, do another one, then, and and I I do so much admire that kind of thing where somebody says, "Here's something, make it better," and you do it, and then maybe you think, "Well, if I could write it again tomorrow, it would be even better." But they wanted it today, Mm. so that's what Mm. we have to say to people, isn't it? That some people will think if I had a bit more time, it would be better. But as we know, if if they want it today, you've got to give it them today, and tomorrow it might be better. But that's too late, you know. So. Mm.
0: How are you with criticism, and what's your um, what's your relationship and your attitude towards criticism?
1: I end up having a fairly thick skin. I think you know people say that terrible. That was rubbish. And well, you know, I, I honestly don't mind. I really don't mind. You know, people. Um, you know, like this morning I put. I, I thought I was being really clever this morning on Twitter. I did a parody of Stevie Smith's famous poem, "Not Waving But Drowning." Mm about the second wave of the virus. And I thought, that's clever. You know, these people liked it. And somebody went, I don't like this at all. And I thought, oh, well, i put everybody to their own. It really, I mean, when I was younger, it probably would have bothered me. Yeah, I think when you're first starting off, it would have bothered you. It's like when people say, do you get nervous going on stage? You think, well, no, I don't. Because I did when I was younger. And I think you're nervous for two reasons. I think the first reason is a physiological reason, because it's your body going, don't get up there, mm. they'll see you. It's like going back to Stone Age times. The Sega Tooth Tiger will see if you get up on there. And, but also it's like they might not like you. They might think you're rubbish. And you think, well, and when you first start, that is a worry. But I've been doing it for a long time. Everything that's bad has happened to me. People have walked out, chucked things, got on stage, tried to perform, tried to push me off stage, uh, ref left, heckled. And at the time it's happening, it's terrible. Mm. But my, my method of doing it is, I think, in geological time, so I think at this moment it's terrible. In a hundred thousand years, oh no, you know. So that and so I'm, you just develop. You must be the same. You must. You have to develop a thick skin. At the time it's happening, you think, God, they don't like me, because we all want to be liked. I like to be liked. We all want to be liked. But when they don't like you, you, think, oh well, you know, fair enough. I remember doing a gig in a village hall in Poppleton, near York. Lovely village hall. And this woman came very early. She went. I read your column every week in the York Post. It's rubbish. It's rubbish. I read it every week. It's rubbish. She went. I've come to see if you're any better live than you are in your column. I went, All right. <laughs> and then she said, "But every week, every week I read your column. It's terrible." I said, "Well, look. Here's a plan. Don't read it. Don't, if you don't like it, don't read it." She said, "I buy it every week. And read it." I said, "Well, if I buy something, I don't write. I don't read it." She went, no, I read it every week, and it <laughs> never gets any better. And then I did the gig, and she liked the gig. She went, oh, "I enjoyed that." I said, "Great." She said, "The column is terrible." terrible. <laughs> yeah. I said, well, look, don't read the bloody thing. <laughs> oh, it's I wonderful, know. isn't it? Like, what, <laughs>
0: what is her objective with that? It's very funny. And
1: sometimes you do get people who, you'll have this, who turn up and they're determined not to enjoy themselves. And they just sit <laughs> there and they sit there and they just, you know, make me laugh or entertain me. And so I remember doing one once, and this woman, she didn't laugh, and I, and I kind of took it on myself as a challenge. but right, I'm going to make you laugh. I'm going to make you laugh. And I couldn't make her laugh, and she didn't seem engaged. But at the end, she came up and said, I really enjoyed that. I said, oh. I said, you didn't seem to be. She said, no, I never laugh. I never laugh, she, but I enjoyed it. So you think, well, maybe maybe the ones who aren't laughing, they probably are enjoying it in their own way. I remember going to a school once, and the teacher was sat there, and the kids were enjoying it. And she was writing an airmail letter to her relatives <laughs> in Australia so much to write this letter. So I'm, I said, please don't. Please don't do that. Please don't write And She ignored me. So I got the kids. We sang this song i made a summer with the kids going. Please don't write that. I'm letter. <laughs> She's still carried on. God, that's the other thing. I mean, I, if I'm in an audience, I always try and be a good audience member. You've got to engage them. You've got to engage the performer because you can see them. I, I like it when the lights are up and you can yeah. see them. I don't like it when it's dark. You know, but it, the audiences should realise that they are at least part of the half the performance, if not more. So an audience member should always be giving you stuff back. You know, not looking at the watch. <laughs>
0: Oh dear. Ian, that's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. If people wanted to check out the projects that you're working on or what you're up to, where's the best way?
1: Where's the, the best, best way, way is to get me on. I would say, I would say, where's the best way? Be Twitter <laughs> at I Macmillan, or I've got a website. Uh, just Google me up. But yeah, and and if we ever get any village halls going again, come and see us at a village hall. But yeah, I've really enjoyed that chat, and, and let's do it again sometime when we think of some new stories.
0: Absolutely, and that'd be fantastic. Thank you. Thank you thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed that see you next time on the robert lane creative careers podcast if you could subscribe to the podcast share it like it comment on it review it tell all your friends about it all of those things would be fantastic because the more that people do that the more that new people get a chance to hear the podcast join the community and enjoy the content that we're putting out you can find me at robertlanemusic.co.uk, and i'm on facebook twitter instagram as robert lane music Please get in touch, let me know if you're enjoying the programmes and who you think I should talk to in the future. Thank you, till next time, goodbye.